Hi, and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, hosted by me, Isa Robinson. I'm a registered associate nutritionist, nutritional therapist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor working in private practice based in London. I believe that the way in which we think and feel about food is just as important as what we put on our plates, and that all foods can fit as part of a healthy and balanced diet. When it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. This podcast aims to get at all the nuances, the cracks and crannies, and the 50 shades of grey when it comes to what it means to practice authentic well-being, hopefully helping us all to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health. Of course, this podcast is purely for educational purposes and not a substitute for proper medical advice and treatment. Right, let's get to it. and welcome back to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. We are back with another juicy episode and I am especially excited about this one as we're going to be discussing all things control. This is something I see all the time in clinic, the feeling of being in control, the sense of being out of control or losing control and how this can pertain to self-care, body image, eating and movement. I know I learned so much from this episode so I hope you all love it too. And who better to speak to about control than clinical psychologist and founder of the Flexible Mind Psychology, Dr. Ian Wooten. Ian is a consultant clinical and forensic psychologist and has worked within psychological settings for over 20 years. Ian has a special interest in RODBT, which stands for Radically Open Dialectical Behavioral Therapy and has advanced training in this area. He has been invited to join the European team of senior RODBT clinicians and has delivered a number of workshops and training events regarding RODBT, disorders of overcontrol, and the differentiation of overcontrol from undercontrol. It is such a great privilege and pleasure to welcome Ian to the podcast. So, welcome to the podcast, Ian. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. It's a nice opportunity to have a chat about RODBT and overcontrol, which is something I'm always keen to do. So yes, thanks for having me. Oh, well, Ian, thank you so much for coming on. And you gave a little um, teaser there of some of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode today. But just before we get to that, I was hoping that you might be able to introduce yourself and to uh, share with the listeners a little bit more about your work. Certainly. Um, Well, I mean, I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist. Uh, My background is in forensic settings. Um, I was in the prison service once I qualified, after which I spent a bit of time in New Zealand. And then uh, for the last 13 years, I've been working in secure hospital settings. Um, But in the last year, I've also um, developed my private practice, which is focused around RODBT in particular, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, and that's the area in which I'm now particularly interested. Uh, well, thank you so much for that, Ian, and uh, so many different and um, exciting things that uh, you've been up to and now also um, in private practice as well. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And uh, Ian, we kind of met through a uh, webinar series that you were doing, uh, talking about RODBT, which I promise we're going to come on to, um, but really talking about control. And I think there is 
so much out there and it's certainly something I see in clinic all of the time, this theme of control. And I wondered if it's all right with you, if you might be able to define maybe what we mean by control and then maybe what we mean by over or under control. Okay, sure. Well, um, the idea of control in itself or self-control, as we might call it, is the ability to delay gratification and to inhibit urges in order to pursue distal goals. So rather than just go for what's before us, it's the idea that we might be able to put that to one side with a long-term idea or aspiration in mind instead. And so the ability to control those urges often enables us to pursue that, that distal goal instead. Um, so that's, that's the overarching sense of self-control. But what I often talk about and focus upon is the idea of over-control. So research has led to the development of two overarching personality styles being identified, and they're over-control and under-control. Now, the argument is that we all lean towards one or the other. So I know, for example, that I lean towards over-control. And <laughs> a lot of successful people, if I can put myself in that bracket, uh, do lean towards over-control because it requires hard work and it requires that ability to pursue a long-term goal in the way that I was describing before. But that's not to say that under-controlled people can't also achieve because there's a lot to be said for spontaneity. Uh, there's a lot to be said for the emotion and the passion that often underpins under control as well. And those are also attributes that can lead to success. In many ways, over control is a very good thing. <clears throat> it's, it's something that enables us to achieve. It enables us to be well-organized, to be ordered and structured, to develop healthy routines and patterns of working and to get a job done. It often is valued by society. It means that society can grow and to make inroads in terms of technology and infrastructure and development. So for example, Developing a vaccine, for example, requires a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, a lot of time, uh, a great deal of attention to detail. And without over-controlled individuals, society wouldn't be able to make these developments in the way that it does. But the question of psychological well-being uh, is brought up when there is a sense that the level of control goes too far. And this is when um, the individual becomes too focused upon goals and structure and routine to the extent that they are unable to flexibly respond to the world and what it throws at them, and to the extent where they're unable to relax or to chill out, um, because that's just as important as achieving goals. Mm, yeah, Ian, thank you so much for such an insightful kind of account of that and I just want to check kind of that I've got it right from my side this sense of we all perhaps sit on this kind of spectrum of leaning towards over or under control and perhaps on one side we have this sense of over control this kind of very kind of focused 
hardworking, maybe their sense of kind of discipline. And on the other hand, maybe there are individuals, and I think under control almost sounds a bit unfair, but maybe are a bit more spontaneous, a bit more creative, um, perhaps, you know, don't respond quite so well to that kind of intense level of structure or some of the structures that we might see in our institutions, like the workplace or school. And we kind of sit there in a sense. And um, it was interesting that one of the things that you said is, is maybe how society kind of views over control and how it might praise the sense of being over controlled before you got to some of the psychological um, elements of, of when over control can maybe move into a space that we might think about as being kind of um, more kind of harmful or having drawbacks. And uh, you talked about the vaccine and I, I wondered about how maybe society might praise this this over control or how that might vary socioculturally is it kind of does that vary between different places or different professionalisms in any sense yeah that's a really good question actually um i think that the value of control is pervasive across societies however the levels at which uh, individuals present does fluctuate according to different cultures. So the research suggests that there is over control and under control in all cultures, but the norms or the mean level of control does increase or decrease according to uh, the culture that a person um, finds themselves in. So for example, here in, in Great Britain, we have perhaps a stereotype um, that we keep a stiff upper lip and we are uh, perhaps sometimes very patient we're quite renowned for queuing and things like that which may suggest that we have the ability to to wait and to delay gratification once again and perhaps also to inhibit our emotions rather than to express them readily um, however there are other cultural stereotypes and there's perhaps reasons for these that other, other cultures are perhaps seen as more passionate, you know, Italian passion is one of the um, a great positive attributes that's associated with the Italian culture. Um, so they may have, the Italian culture may still have this differentiation between over control and under control, but your, your mean, your mean level of control may be um, lower than the mean level of control in Britain. So I hope that kind of illustrates uh, that there is still this, this normal distribution curve within those different cultures. No, that's really helpful. Thank you so much for that. And I think something maybe you brought into the conversation as well is that um, there's sort of maybe different emotional states or nuances bound up in um, over and under control. So I think you spoke about the stiff upper lip and perhaps um, maybe being kind of more in control of our emotions as well as maybe how we might be kind of hardworking and disciplined and productive um, yeah. and then perhaps somebody that is um, kind of leans towards under control perhaps um, maybe shows emotions a little bit more I don't know if that links to like wearing one's heart on one's sleeve yes um, absolutely kind of, so it's um, it en encompasses maybe emotions as, as well yeah, absolutely. So emotional expression is one of the key 
um, factors that differentiate between over control and under control. With an under controlled individual, you're more likely to know how they're feeling because they show it quite willingly and quite, quite quickly. Um, but an over controlled individual may have a tendency to keep things in, to hide their feelings a little bit, um, and to put on perhaps a, a blank expression or what we call a flat face as a means of hiding or, or concealing their, their vulnerabilities sometimes. And we, we know that this, this develops as a result of some environmental influences that person may have been exposed to in their background or their upbringing. Um, they may also have a predisposition towards over-control biologically. They may have been born with a brain that was sensitive to threats and sensitive to um, the idea of being criticized uh, and therefore, when they grow up in an environment that also promotes the idea of weakness and vulnerability and mistakes are not good things, then they may further develop that propensity for masking what's really going on inside. Furthermore, they may also decide to not take any risks. So they may decide that they want to just um, remain within their comfort zone and to stop or resist taking on any new challenges through that fear of making mistakes and being criticized as a result, because that's something they, they don't like to experience. Ian, thank you so much for touching there on maybe some of the um, genetic and biological underpin underpinnings of where we might lean to, as well as these environmental influences in our early life and development, because something I always want to be doing in conversations around health is really shifting a focus from um, individual blame or shame that might come up when we may be listening to these conversations and to really think about all of the complexities um, that underpin uh, these different kind of conditions or, or states. So I really kind of um, appreciate hearing that. And, and I guess something I kind of wanted to maybe clear up is this sense of it's not a good or bad over or under control. It's just kind of thinking about how yeah. somebody makes yeah. it. And um, I wonder if some of the, the language and psychology here might be a little bit judgmental, like the sense of like being under control or even having a flat face as opposed to maybe a, a neutral or blank expression. Mm. Just, I, I sometimes wonder about, about some of the, the language, although I know that we're not personally responsible for that, but I thought I would just kind of flag it as maybe always wanting to remove judgments in a sense? I think that the point about the flat face is one that <laughs> relates to a concept that we discuss a lot within RODBT, which is social signaling. And so a flat face is one that gives off a social signal that may deter other people from engaging with that individual. So it's not necessarily a hostile face, it's not necessarily one that is going to um, cause offence to people, but it's one that equally doesn't, doesn't encourage interaction or warmth within interactions. So for me, there is something about it being called a flat face because it relates to perhaps the mood or the tone that that person is putting across. So it may relate to a flat mood or a flat affect, um, which I guess is a slightly more clinical term. Um, and maybe 
I don't know if that makes it sound slightly less judgmental, uh, yeah. but it maybe helps to illustrate the impact that this social signal might have. Yeah, I think it definitely helps to um, explain it and to to get underneath it for sure. Um, so thank you, thank you for that. I am curious, just coming back to um, over control. Um, I am curious, perhaps, uh, as you alluded to, when somebody might move into over control that starts to maybe be concerning or we start to think of as, as um, something that we might kind of want to question mark and, and maybe why that might be. I guess this goes back to what we were discussing at the beginning really is that there's some individuals who have an over-controlled um, personality or coping style, they struggle to relax, they struggle to chill out. Um, and this can lead on to um, internalizing disorders such as depression and also anxiety. They may also be perceived as uptight or aloof within their relationships. Um, and this can lead to the individual feeling quite isolated, quite socially disconnected, which is one of the main targets of our ODBT. Um, and it can also mean that they struggle to adapt to the world or to deal with what life throws at them. So if you imagine the pandemic that we've all been putting up with for this last year or so, um, it's required a huge amount of um, flexibility in the way that we've lived our lives. Our routines have been thrown out of, out of kilter massively. We've had to adapt. We've all had to wear face masks and we've had to be socially distanced. And, we're doing all of our work by technology uh, rather than going into the office. And so for some of us, that's been relatively okay to cope with. We've understood the reasons and we've had to just get on with it. But for other people, that has required huge adjustment emotionally and psychologically, as well as practically and physically. And so these adjustments are things that sometimes, not usually to the extent that we've had to this last year or so, we have to deal with adjustments and we have to adapt to changing environmental circumstances. If we're unable to do that, then it can leave us feeling very anxious, but also very isolated as well. If we're not connected to other people, then we feel perhaps that we might have to cope with these things alone and coping alone, as, as we may be able to imagine quite easily. Is, is a very difficult thing to do sometimes. So if we are already quite socially disconnected, then it does make this coping much more difficult to, to tolerate. Yeah, yeah, I can perhaps hear this kind of um, sense of being really quite rigid or kind of fixed in, in one's routine or, or set of, of rules that, that maybe they follow. And I think it's really interesting um, thinking about this as well and, and maybe I, I kind of perhaps see this in my clients sometimes and I might invite them to think about rest um, or um, kind of taking some time out from kind of being productive <clears throat> and it's this sense of um, uh, why do I need to do that or this sense of how much this over control is so praised by our culture yeah. 
Um, I mean, even taking the pandemic uh, as an example again, because it seems to be a really good one for everything. You know, when we went into lockdown over a year ago, it was this sense of, well, are you using this time to learn a language and make sure you do a home workout every day? And have you got your new routine for being at home? And, you know, have you made banana bread? And it's this sense of permanently needing to be doing, to be achieving, to be being productive, to be not wasting our time. Yeah. And it feels as though maybe um, this over control is really, really um, pushed and praised. And as individuals maybe strive to have that kind of sense of perfection or rigidity in their yeah. routine, we then start to see some of these negative yeah. logical consequences or repercussions like the um, inability to relax, which then might induce a um, feeling anxious or, or depression or becoming socially isolated, etc. So yeah, it feels as though our culture is, is also kind of pushing this where and it may be harmful. Absolutely. I think that that, that push comes from multiple directions as well. If you imagine the education system, um, historically, if not still, is very much focused on grades and attainment and developing skills with a view to becoming a successful and a productive person as, a, as an adult. Um, but in addition to that, if you imagine social influences uh, of how to bring up a child, so historically, we had the idea that a child should be seen and not heard, mm -hmm. i.e. very, very controlled. Mm -hmm. If you imagine the image of uh, a screaming child in a supermarket, they may be frowned upon. Mm -hmm. um, not just the screaming, but even an emotional child, or a, a child um, expressing themselves in a public place. They may be frowned upon. There may be an expectation that a parent would be able to control their child better. Yeah. And so these are hidden messages, sometimes not so hidden messages, but, but they're messages that we pick up from our society that tells us what we should or shouldn't be like as we're growing up. Yeah. And so I think, again, these are all ideas that we, we may latch onto or we may uh, internalize. And when we feel that 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 is also paired with criticism or paired with a sense that what we, what we may uh, present is wrong in some way, um, then we may learn to inhibit or, or mask those, those feelings as well. So I do think that this is all um, exacerbating the, the propensity for a person to become um, much more constrained and, and restricted in the way that they express themselves. And I think something that was so interesting from uh, the presentation that, that you gave uh, was that sort of um, bell curve, um, which showed that maybe as um, control goes up, psychological well-being can go up because we have a sense of, of achieving and um, you know maybe having outward success. But as the control kind of continues to go, actually psychological well-being. Yeah come down and so actually individuals that may be kind of in this space of extreme over control actually aren't necessarily happier even yeah. if they have all of the associated control and can be super productive and yeah. you know function without rest it's it's not necessarily making us happier 
That's right. That's right. So a lot of people can appreciate that low levels of control. Um, so imagine a person who is emotionally labile or dysregulated may also have a low level of psychological well-being. So we might sometimes refer to somebody as being out of control, which is a judgmental uh, comment, but reflective of the understanding that psychological well-being might be impaired. And so naturally, we, we would imagine that as levels of control increase, psychological well-being increases. But once we go past a certain level, then psychological well-being starts to decrease as well, um, to the extent where it can become so low that it's just as low as those people that we originally considered to be um, psychologically unwell or, or, or struggling in some way. I always think it goes back to this sense of, um, you know, being in these nice um, kind of gray spaces where like we can have too much of a good thing. You know? And I like to, to sometimes talk about in my clinic in terms of objectively nutritious foods or like, you know, too many of, of anything or too much of anything. And it feels yeah. like this is the same, just having that gray space and that flexibility to yeah. um, kind of have the rest and not extend in, into anything in an extreme mm. way. Well, going back to one of the cultural uh, points that, that you alluded to before is about the ability to play and have fun. Um, so we, you know, going back to the education system, the education system encourages structure to a large extent. It encourages work and it encourages productivity, but that does need to be balanced with fun as well. Um, so we don't want to have fun all the time because it probably wouldn't be fun then. It would probably become um, monotonous and, and tedious. We need to have some meaning and some purpose, but we don't want it all to be meaning and purpose. So too much work makes Jack a dull boy, I think the saying is. So we need to have that balance of both. Um, but recognizing as well that play and fun are a very important part of life. We all play or at least we have all played as children uh, we play as a means of learning this is about rehearsal for becoming an adult and we rehearse roles we take on certain roles within our play as as means of rehearsing and preparing for when we might step into those roles in real life as we get older um, and interestingly all mammals play all mammals play as a means of their development as well so it is a natural thing and we need to recognize this and encourage a bit of play and a bit of fun and a bit of downtime as well yeah uh and thank you for that point as well and it really made me think of something that i talk about in my nutrition sessions all of the time um which is from the intuitive eating literature on play with food as well and having this sense of like fun and play in our foods um, and actually it's been talked about with movement as well that, you know, rather than see exercise as like getting it done and must do it, it's a sense of, are we having fun and are we having play yeah. in that? Uh, which yeah. look like having those kind of fun foods. I think of them as like foods that are purely for pleasure yeah. um, and also having play and movement, like a game of tag or, you know, something again there. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really nice to think about that in these other dimensions of our life and how integral that is to mm -hmm. our development but, um, yeah. and also our, our psychological well-being so we have been 
kind of dropping in every now and then RODBT. And so <laughs> I thought this might be a great time to perhaps um, kind of ask you a little bit about how RODBT kind of links to some of what we've been talking about control. And if possible, as um, we're kind of thinking about this, maybe think about where it might sort of intertwine with eating disorders and disordered eating in particular, as maybe um, some conditions in which control is, is can be and, and is quite a big theme. So RODBT stands for Radically Open and Dialectical Behaviour Therapy. Now, a lot of people may have heard of DBT, which stands for Dialectical Behaviour Therapy. And, and they are associated, but very different at the same time. So DBT um, was originally developed in the early 90s by Marshall and And this is primarily targeting disorders of emotional dysregulation. So people who are at that under-controlled end of that bell curve that we talked about before. RODBT was only published in 2018. And it was developed by Tom Lynch, who uh, spent many years researching the concept of over-control and devising this treatment to target over-control. It's actually the only treatment that specifically focuses upon this. So in relation to your question about how this relates to disordered eating, now I will just say that I'm not an expert on disordered eating. But what I am aware of is that there are some individuals for whom their disordered eating does amount to a sense of over-control, um, that this is a means by which they maybe um, apply control to their life and um, they restrict their eating and they, they manage their needs by limiting the, the intake of food, of course. Um, in relation to that, those individuals may have other aspects of their life that could constitute very rigid and very structured um, aspects. Now, in particular, over-control is, is an attribute associated with anorexia nervosa. And so we may be able to use RODT to target these elements of control in an individual with anorexia. Um, but the benefit that has been reported in terms of RODBT is that it doesn't specifically focus upon food or talk about it. So by getting the individual to explore their perspectives and their beliefs, RODBT turns out to be very effective. And the, the anecdotal information that I've heard of is that those individuals actually like it for the fact that it isn't specifically targeting eating food and that it's looking at that individual in a more holistic way, focusing on their personality and their coping style um, rather than specifically the manifestation of that around food. Um, one of the additional factors that relates specifically to those with disordered eating is that we talk about the different neural substrates within RODBT. So what this means is that we um, have different parts of the brain that turn on and turn off according to the different cues that we experience within our environment or within ourselves or contextually. And when those cues occur, we have a different uh, reaction to them based on our interpretation of them. And 
some of those cues relate to the way that we might think about the world, uh, going back to that idea of the world perhaps being seen as a threatening or dangerous place. Um, some of those cues or thoughts might relate to thoughts about ourselves as well. Now, again, my understanding is that often those who suffer from eating disorders may have certain thoughts or beliefs about themselves that could actually hold them back from living their life more fully. So rather than, again, rather than focusing upon the food, we may be able to have a look at how that person thinks about themselves in order that they don't um, activate certain substrates. So specifically, uh, the dorsal vagal complex is the one that is often activated by somebody who's very malnourished and they may experience that sense of numbness that can actually reinforce their tendency to restrict their eating. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, I'm just sitting here um, nodding because I think it's um, just fascinating. And I guess what I'm kind of hearing from you is this sense that um, RDBT can be used um, in this population to really perhaps move away from just the focus on food to thinking about kind of what what is was underneath and I think it goes back to that kind of sense of eating disorders aren't about the food and I, I kind of like to say well actually they aren't about the food and they are and there is that part that we can look at in terms of relationship with food but there's also this sense of an eating disorder functioning as a means of maybe control of certainty of um, helping us feel more worthy, helping us to feel like enough when perhaps we have had that um, missing um, in our lives or we're looking to access that through either the control we might get from restricting our food intake or the worth we may feel from um, controlling our body or, or changing our body to fit socio-cultural um, ideals of beauty. And so RODBT might kind of think about targeting that side of things to yeah. um, help an individual who is, is over-controlled in those spaces to look at those maybe self-limiting beliefs about um, mm -hmm low self-worth or, or not feeling enough in order to ease up some of that control. Absolutely and, and Tom Lynch strongly recommends that when RODBT is being delivered to somebody with eating disorders then that that individual also has support in terms of their their actual food intake and their weight management and so forth so it's not to be considered as a um, a standalone treatment it is recognizing that there is a need to consider the other side as well yeah and and i think um you know that that makes sense in terms of the the benefit we see from a multidisciplinary approach and i think for a lot of uh, individuals that may experience eating disorders having some respite to have uh, therapeutic support that doesn't purely focus on food yeah. um can be so important and and relieving perhaps yeah. um in in many other senses and i i think you know certainly when i think about um my um experiences um and working with um some of this population um i really tend to see this sense of um eating disorder behaviors continuing to feed that 
um, sense of feeling in control and lots of rigid um, rules, um, perhaps uh, lack of um, wanting to break out of routine or um, having maybe some challenges and maybe taking some some risks and I don't mean risks that mm -hmm. put us in danger but maybe you know um, having a bit more spontaneity or yeah. um, having some more of those kinds of life experiences where we can just do things on a bit of a whim or change yeah. our minds about something uh, so it feels like this would be um, a really valuable modality to explore for somebody that might be experiencing something like that. Absolutely. I think you've summarized it really well. Um, just to kind of elaborate a little bit, one of the one of the, the key techniques within RIDT is the use of self-inquiry, mm -hmm. which is the idea that we develop an openness to other possibilities or other views rather than the ones that we've always held on to be true um, in our own minds. So we refer to loosening one's grip of our beliefs and also to noticing emotions or discomfort or energy within us that actually can be an opportunity for learning. So you mentioned taking risks and we talk a lot about going outside of our comfort zone, taking off the suit of armor that protects us from uh, the outside world. So we try to move towards the limits of our understanding, which we call our edge, with a view to learning from those feelings and those, those difficult places, because that's where most learning occurs. Um, so alongside this, we recognize that we hold on to some beliefs and that looking at alternatives can be helpful. And that we can sometimes tell ourselves stories about ourselves that maybe serve to protect us from discomfort or they have a function for us which sometimes can be helpful but maybe there are times when those stories could be unhelpful or limiting as well so i can imagine that some individuals who restrict their eating maybe have self-perceptions that might be very rigid and that their outlook could potentially benefit from considering other possibilities instead. Um, so sometimes we might say things about ourselves and hold on to that, but opening our mind to, to alternative um, ideas could provide the opportunity for learning as well. Yeah, gosh, Ian, I could really um, chat to you about this for, for days and, and it's just so interesting i think particularly as a nutrition professional to hear about the other sort of side of, of the kind of psychological uh, ways in which we can really support um individuals and i guess if it's all right with you i just wanted to maybe pick your brains on kind of one last thing that, that i wonder if might be really helpful for, for anyone listening and that is this sense of i think often when somebody is in recovery there is this sense of when they maybe perhaps aren't using eating disorder driven behaviors, they feel this sense of losing control or feeling out of control. Um, and it's something that I get, I'm, I'm maybe I'm losing my discipline, I'm losing my control, I'm not in control, mm -hmm. I feel out of control. And I was just wondering if you might be able to speak to that at all yeah. um, in terms of your expertise in, in RODBT. Yeah, I think that my take on that would be about restructuring our perception of what it means 
to lose control or to step out of our comfort zone. So as I've just mentioned, the idea that we, we learn most when we go out of our comfort zone is one point that we've put across. Um, and to back that up, we encourage novel behavior. We encourage trying new things. Um, we even encourage non-productive behavior rather than goal-driven behavior all the time. Um, but we, we practice this within class, within sessions, and we also set homework along these lines as well. Some of that homework might entail just trying to do things differently. You know, it might involve sitting in a different seat or it might involve wearing your watch on the opposite wrist or it might involve doing your hair differently. Or to, taking it a bit further, it might involve talking in an Italian accent. <laughs> So, you know, that's part of the silliness, but it's also about doing things differently as well. So we do try to encourage, actively encourage, taking these steps into those areas of discomfort. Now, one of the learning points from that is that by wearing your watch on the opposite wrist, it might feel uncomfortable, but it doesn't cause a problem. And so by taking these small steps, we can hopefully generalize that point onto other areas of one's life where we also avoid taking risks or doing things differently. So it's not about being out of control. It's more about being comfortable with being in a, in a, in a different place or doing things differently. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for that and for your uh, brilliant Italian accent. <laughs> and, and yeah, I think that is really, I really in particular love this sense of doing uh, new things um, and uh, having this sense of um, kind of active relaxation or being non-productive um, and having fun. And I guess something that I really, that really spoke to me in kind of this conversation we have, but also your presentation is the sense of, of kind of, is this space of control really aligning with one's values and aligning with how someone truly and authentically wants to show up in the world as themselves mm. in terms of you know doing x y and z versus doing what society praises as right yeah. um and and having that as something we should do and i think particularly when we look at this sense of being in an over controlled space doesn't align with optimal psychological well-being we can start to question whether this feeling of control that we might be hanging on to um, is really um, enriching and um, helping us to live our, our most rich and meaningful life I guess and yeah. where we might want to add in those that play and those novel experiences and yeah. start kind of questioning our, our beliefs as, as you mentioned. Absolutely I think the point there about living a rich and meaningful life is one that's key as well because we talk a lot about whether an individual wants to stay stuck in the position that they're in. Now, there's nothing wrong with staying as you are if you're happy and fulfilled and satisfied and so forth. But if a person is struggling, if they're not happy and fulfilled and satisfied, then staying stuck is not going to be a, a positive or um, a desirable thing to do. And so in order to become unstuck, 
the first thing that we have to do is to recognize that we are stuck and that change may be necessary. Um, and it's not to change just for the sake of it. We're not trying to change everything or to turn that person into an under-controlled individual. But it's about beginning to reflect on one's own experiences and outlook with a view to changing what may be helpful to change in order to become unstuck. Yeah. Um, I think that is a brilliant note to uh, wrap up on. Um, and yeah, again, I just wanted to say thank you so, so much for, for this conversation today. It, it really resonates with me in such um, a personal way as somebody that really identifies with being in a very, very over-controlled space in my later teens um, and just, yeah, the rigidity, um, um, but also this, how that maybe took away from me being able to live, I think, fully. Um, and I definitely know now, and I know we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, this sense of really needing to have balance and really schedule out that time for rest which I know for me sometimes can take more discipline to, to be actually really doing things that are non-productive um, or take that spontaneous decision even when there's discomfort so yeah it's really um, wonderful to hear more about the evidence base behind something that I feel really uh, resonates with me personally and Ian, thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise in this area. You're very welcome. I enjoyed chatting. Um, yeah, I'm happy to, to chat more, should you like to do so at any time. It's been a pleasure. I am sure I, I will um, and would love to take you up on that. Ian, if it's all right with you, would you mind just letting the listeners know where they can find you if they want to get in touch, if that's okay, or they want to find out more about your work? Um, yeah, anything that would be amazing. Absolutely. So um, my website is called Flexible Mind Psychology. So you can find me at www.flexiblemindpsychology.co.uk uh, and you'll see my contact details there, but it just explains a little bit about what I do on that website. So feel free to have a look. Fantastic. Well, Ian, thank you so much again, and I will wish you a wonderful Friday afternoon, and I hope that we can chat again very soon. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Ian. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was such a fascinating episode, and I, for one, want to learn more and more about REDBT. I also loved some of what Ian mentioned in terms of the importance of having fun and play or making time to actually be unproductive and for trying something new. Since listening to um, this episode back and recording it, I have been trying to put some things in practice, including trying not to be doing any work on the weekend. And I tried something new recently, which was a pottery kit sent to my home from a company called Sculpt, which I think you can find online and on Instagram. And they send you um, a thing of clay and some tools and different paints. And I chose some pastel colors and had a go at sculpting some candlestick holders and painting them. I'm not sure that they are going to be a new career change or development, but I found the whole experience super messy, super fun, and I had a good laugh doing it. And it was also great to just have something to do that was off a screen as well. 
So I wanted to invite you all this week to perhaps consider scheduling in something different, something unproductive, or something that really focuses on fun and play. Ian, thank you so, so much again for this episode. I think there is so much valuable information in here and I really hope that we get the chance to speak again. I'll be back next week and look forward to catching up with you all then.